I guess most of you, probably all of us, have had the experience at some point of being in a barber's or a hairdresser's when there's a very small child who's been taken to the barber's or the hairdresser's for the first time. Some of you who are parents will remember very clearly taking your child to the barber's or the hairdresser's for the first time. I've got a friend that's a barber, and a couple of weeks ago, another friend of mine took her little boy to have his hair cut, and she also took her older 16-year-old son so that between the two of them, they could hold him in a headlock and give him a nice haircut. And I remember very clearly one of the first times that I was taken to the barber as a child. And this barber was used to small children being taken for the first time. He had some tricks up his sleeve. So when I arrived, he said to me, what's your favorite comic? And he produced a whole stack of comics. And I think he was expecting me to say the Beano or the Dandy. And he was slightly surprised when I told him it was the Farmer's Weekly. <laughs> my big dream when I was a small child was to be like my granddad or my uncle and to be a dairy farmer. I longed to have cows. If the three-year-old Tom could see the almost 38-year-old Tom, I'm just saying almost 38 to remind the team my birthday's coming up very soon. <laughs> don't forget it. <laughs> um, he would be very disappointed because I don't even have a goldfish, let alone a field of cows. Life doesn't always work out like we once dreamt that it might do. Sometimes it works out way better. Sometimes it works out way worse. Sometimes it's a combination of all of those things. And we are going to look today at what we do when life doesn't work out like we once dreamt that it might have done. And as Kath mentioned, we are spending a few weeks looking at some big themes in the Bible, themes that run throughout the whole of Scripture from start to finish, and we put them together in the form of this little letter, imagining that God is writing us a letter, and we are on week three. God saying to us, I'm with you in the rubbish. And that big theme literally runs from start to finish. It starts with Adam and Eve. And we see, even when we get right to the end of the Bible, John, who wrote Revelation, the last book in the Bible, his life didn't turn out like he'd once dreamed that it might have done. And we're going to look in particular, because we could look in so many different places, we're going to look in particular this morning at Jesus' meeting with a Samaritan woman. And before we read it together, you need to know that the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get on with each other. They were two different ethnic and religious groups, and good Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. They were similar to each other, but different. They had big cultural differences, big societal differences, big political differences in their history, and big religious differences. So when we see in a minute... Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, the fact that he's even talking to her in the first place is really significant. So we're going to have a read of this account. You can find it if you want to follow along in John's Gospel, and it's in chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 6, partway through verse 6. Jesus was tired from the journey. He sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I think it's probably a fair assumption to say that for this woman, we don't know the circumstances of her life, but it's a fair assumption that her life had not worked out as she may have once dreamt that it would work out. When she was younger and thinking about what her best life would look like, I'm pretty sure it didn't involve her being in the circumstances she finds herself in. We don't know whether her marriages had ended through tragedy, through death, through abandonment, through her fault or the fault of her husband's or whether it was a mixture of all of those things. But there's a hint in the story that she's covered in a bit of scandal in her own community because she's out at midday going to the well by herself in a culture where going to the well together communally earlier in the morning was a thing. So it just makes us wonder why is it that she's out by herself going to the well and not with all the other women when they go earlier in the day and it's less hot. But whatever the background, whatever the cause, whatever the circumstances, however much we speculate, wherever the fault lay, it doesn't keep Jesus away. Jesus went and sat by the well. Now I have a Jesus who's gonna come forward and he's gonna come and sit by the well. Come on Jesus, come and sit by the well. Now it turns out, Jesus did know about this woman, and he did know her story, and he did know her background, but he came and he sat by the well anyway. And when they get talking, Jesus doesn't move on. So poor James, he's going to have to sit here for quite a while, because Jesus doesn't move. Jesus stays there. And you can see her absolute surprise when somebody from the other side, when a Jew comes up and talks to her, you can see that in verse 9 when she says to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? But political baggage, cultural baggage, didn't keep Jesus away. He went and he sat by the well. Cultural baggage, society baggage, political baggage, it never keeps Jesus away. I think one of the most beautiful stories that I've ever read of just a massive political social thing going on in society 
and Jesus staying. Um, some of you will know this story. It's a wonderful, it's, it's beautiful and harrowing story of Corrie ten Boom during the Second World War in Holland. She was an older single woman. She lived with her elderly father and her sister Betsy, who was also um, single. The three of them lived together. The dad ran a, w a watchmaking business. And when the Nazis invaded Holland, the three of them, with their extended family, began quietly helping Jews, hiding Jews, helping Jews to escape. They'd known and they'd loved Jesus for years. And then suddenly the dial on the, my life is good on one side, my life is rubbish on the other side, began to turn. Because life began getting tougher and tougher and tougher for them. And actually, the more they did the right thing, the tougher life seemed to get. Some of you will know that feeling. The more you do the right thing, the tougher life seems to get. And by the end of the war, Corrie ten Boom, who wrote the book The Hiding Place, I recommend it highly, she was still alive. But her father and her sister, along with many of the people they tried to help, had not made it through the Second World War. They died in concentration camps. And the thing that I remember standing out above all else as I read her book was she knew and she loved Jesus before any of that kicked off. And by the end of it, she knew and she loved Jesus even more, even in the middle of that horrendous rubbish, because she discovered that in the middle of it all, Jesus was right there with her in the middle of all the rubbish as it kicked off. Rubbish is too mild a word for it. It's horrendous. But it is a beautiful story. I recommend it to you. Even when life is going terribly wrong through no fault of our own, even when health crises are kicking off, financial crises, family crises, emotional crises, Jesus is still there, still sat at the well, and he knows the deal he's letting himself in for when he starts talking to us in the first place. Because for those of us who are people of God, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who've put our faith in him, and the invitation is open to all of us, Jesus says to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's a story of Corrie ten Boom's book. It's awful. But her testimony at the end of it was, never did he leave me, never did he forsake me. So however deep, however wide, however long, however high, the rubbish and the nonsense that you face in your life is, has been, or may become, for those who put their faith in Jesus, never, not once, will he leave us. Never, not once, will he abandon us. And it all sounds really wonderful and marvelous. And yet sometimes when we're faced with it, the reality of Jesus' willingness to be with us in the middle of rubbish, in the middle of nonsense, it actually almost seems too much, which is bizarre. Because we long for him not to leave us. And then when we find him in the middle of rubbish, and this is particularly the case when we may have had a hand in producing some of that rubbish, we find it really hard to accept that he's still there, sat at the well, having seen the whole picture. When the Samaritan woman sees that Jesus knows the whole picture, she actually freaks out a bit. 
and she tries to deflect the conversation away from herself. She discovers that he's sat there with her, that he knows the whole deal, that he sees what she's really like, and for a second, she just can't take it. If we read on, we see this, a classic bit of deflection from her. So I will start again in verse 17. We just read that. Jesus, she said to Jesus, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Now listen to her reply to that. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It's a really weird answer to what has become a very potentially intense conversation between the two of them. It's an important point. It is worth knowing the answer to. Jesus, God, made our minds to use, not just to abandon. But when they've just had this really intense conversation, she suddenly throws up this really academic point. Now, I want to tell you a little story about a friend of mine. A friend of mine. To preserve my friend's anonymity, I'm going to call him Mom Torgan, so you can't work out who he is. And um, Mom Torgan is at college, and sometimes he hasn't done his homework. And when he goes to college and he hasn't done his homework, once lectures start, his hand will be one of the first hands up, and he will ask a really complicated, in-depth question to try and prove to the lecturer that he knows what is going on and to try and make sure that the lecturer thinks, oh, he's already asked a question, he's already engaged with this, I don't need to ask him anything else. And sometimes, Mom Torgan, when he's caught out by the lecturer and they ask him a question which he clearly doesn't know the answer to but he definitely should know the answer to if he bothered to do his homework properly, he will reply to the lecturer's question with a whole series of questions to try and throw the lecturer off. We all do it. We do it all the time. And when we know that Jesus hasn't moved, that he sees the whole picture, he knew the whole picture before he sat down in the first place, sometimes we actually find that pretty difficult to cope with. One of my observations over time in myself is that pride and shame are often two sides of exactly the same coin. So when I feel ashamed because I haven't done my homework at college, I try and show off by asking some kind of fancy question. But I know in my own life, if I drill down even deeper, where I find pride in my life, it's often trying to cover for shame, to throw people off the scent of what I am ashamed of. It's there all the time. Once you spot it, you'll see it all over the place. And it's nasty when you spot it in yourself. But Jesus knew that as well when he came and sat by the well, when he went and sat down with that Samaritan woman, and when he sat down with me. Because he knows my rubbish, my sin, my failures, my mistakes, inside out, all of them, the whole picture, and he came and sat by the well anyway. He doesn't ignore what's going on. He's not pretending that the scenario is different, but he treats the woman with enormous dignity. When we read it, we can think, well, it's a bit rude the way he asks her for a drink, but actually to her it was communicating value because Jews would never drink with Samaritans, let alone drink out of the same vessel as they were. Jesus communicates value to her. 
even though she and other people may have written themselves off. God being with us in the middle of rubbish doesn't just apply to rubbish that just happens or rubbish that other people do to us or as a result of just life in general. God being with us in the rubbish through his own reasons, I can't understand why he does it to me, but he comes and sits with us anyway. Not because we deserve it, not because we've shown him that we're good, but it's just who he is. And I'm always really aware that um, when I talk about stuff like this, it's very easy to sit there and think, oh yeah, his example of mucking up was some lame example that he didn't do his homework at college. But if you knew what was really going on in my life, if you knew how I'd cheated, how I'd stolen, how I'd let people down, how I'd mucked up numerous relationships, Tom, you'd realize that it's not so easy for people like me. But God sees people like you, and he sees people like me. He sees the very depth of the rubbish inside us. He sees all our sins, all our failures, all our mistakes, the bits that we let other people see, and the bits that nobody sees. And he comes, and he sits down by the side of the well. And like James, he doesn't move. He stays there. He knew the deal when he began the conversation with us right at the very beginning. But God goes further through Jesus than just coming and sitting by the side of the well. Because he not only comes and sits with us, but he takes our rubbish off of us. <laughs> Sometimes it's a bit slow because we can be a bit slow to give up our rubbish. <laughs> and he puts our rubbish on himself. Because, as it says, he was pierced for our rubbish, for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities, our rubbish. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, our rubbish is healed. He's not only with us in a sort of, I'm thinking of you kind of way. Yeah, you're my friend, I'm like, you're in my thoughts. He's with us in a, I'm suffering alongside you, I'm carrying you, I'm helping you every day, however deep this rubbish is, kind of way. Jesus, in some ways, he's not for the shiny and the perfect and those of us that have got it all together and those of us that have got no problems and no rubbish in our life, whether it's rubbish that somebody else has done to us, whether it's circumstances that have happened to us, whether it's our own rubbish. Jesus said that people like that, they don't need a doctor. But Jesus did say, and in this case about those of us that have made silly mistakes, that have brought rubbish on ourselves, he said, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to call people like Tom Morgan to change. Not to stand on the well and yell at them, but to come and sit by them at the well, knowing full well the deal that I'm getting, knowing Tom Morgan, inside out, all the bits that he'll stand up on Sunday and let other people see, and all the bits that he's still too proud to let other people see so he keeps to himself, so he can show a more polished exterior. He sees the whole deal, every bit of it, and he comes and he sits by the well knowing what he's getting. And we don't need to understand why he does it, 
because I can tell you loads of theological reasons why he does it, but I still don't understand really why he does it, why he came to sit by the well, because he knew that I'm silly, I make lots of mistakes, I'm proud, I do all sorts of things which I'm not going to list to you now. But he came and sat by the well anyway. I don't understand his motivation, but he did it. We call it grace. It's his undeserved kindness towards us. So whatever rubbish you are facing today, whether it is rubbish in your life that is what somebody else has done to you, whether it's circumstances, whether you're in the middle of a big political storm that you feel like you've got no control over, life is just happening around you and it's rubbish, or whether it's rubbish that is partially or wholly of your own making, Jesus comes and he sits by the well and he hasn't moved and he knew the deal that he was getting when he sat there in the first place. He knew the deal that he was getting when he spoke to you in the first place. You might be like that woman as she went to the well right at the beginning. You've got no idea who this Jesus guy is. But I want to assure you, if you feel like he's beginning, possibly, maybe, to show you that he's there, he sees the whole deal, everything you don't let other people see, and he still wants to start the conversation with you. Because he takes you as you are. And it may be you've been following Jesus for a long time, and you find it really hard when the conversation gets intense, and you realize that he actually knows what's going on in here, and you can give him all your good bits, but you can't quite believe that he sees all the bits that aren't quite so good, and you just want to tell him the good answer to the question that you've just made up, and you don't want him to see that you haven't done your homework, but he sees it all, and he's not moving on, because he sees the whole picture inside of you. And so we're just going to spend a few minutes, in a moment, James, thank you very much, you can go and sit down. Yeah, give him a round of applause. Thanks, James. We're going to just spend a few minutes, just quietly in a minute, we're going to stand together and we're just going to say, Holy Spirit, are you showing me anything this morning? Holy Spirit, are you talking to me this morning? Holy Spirit, if you're here, please will you talk to me this morning? Please will you come and do entirely what you want to do and if you're really brave, whether you're a Christian or you're moving towards being a Christian or you're not sure about any of it or you think it's all nonsense, let him come and sit by the well next to you knowing that he sees the whole picture, the unpolished, the unshiny version of you and he takes you by his grace not because of your goodness, but because of his goodness, just because of who he is.